Maybe many of you have heard the story of the Christmas truce of 1914. It started on Christmas Eve when German and British troops fighting World War I began to sing Christmas carols to each other across the lines. But at the break of day on Christmas Day, some German soldiers emerged from their trenches and approached the Allied lines, calling out Merry Christmas in the enemy's native tongues. The Allied soldiers uh, feared it was a trick, but soon learned that the German soldiers were not carrying weapons. And so for the next hours on that day, the men began to exchange presents of cigarettes and plum puddings, and they sang carols and songs. Some Germans lit Christmas trees around their trenches, and there was even a documented case of soldiers from opposing side playing a good nature game of soccer. This was never to happen again. What did it serve? It served as a heartening proof that however brief, that beneath the brutal crush of weapons, the soldiers' essential humanity endured in love and peace. We know there's disharmony around the world. There's disharmony in our own homes. Disharmony in creation. There's disharmony between man and God. So we need to pay careful attention to why he tells us in these verses that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. So I'd ask that you would look in your Bibles and listen to verses 6 and 7 this morning. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, you come and minister. You come and let us understand what it means that you are the Prince of Peace. And then let us apply it, but more than anything, that we would go forth and tell of this great Savior that we have been studying for so many weeks now, why he is the wonderer, the counselor, the warrior God, eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. For they pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing that we start is we'll look at the name of Prince. And so we understand that Prince begins to talk about the authority that's given to Jesus. And we understand that we do have things like formal titles. We have common names and we have phrases that we say for one another. We understand it with the royal family. You have and I have different titles and different functions. But this is a formal title. And so extensive because it also talks not just to a title of who Christ is, but it also speaks to his purpose to execute authority. 
If you were to go on to the royal family's website, you will find that the purpose of all those underneath her is to perform what is the bidding of the queen. So it's with that kind of understanding in the formal title that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace and he upholds everything that God has put before him. And one of the things that God has given to him is he's given to him the government. And it says that the government will be upon his shoulders because he is to have the executive authority over the whole kingdom of God. He is the one who bears the burden. And as he is the one who bears the burden, he lifts it from us. We don't have a tyrant who rules over us. We have a prince of peace. And so when he looks to us, he tells us, according to Matthew 11, verses 29 through 30, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's what Jesus brings to us as that Prince of Peace. But he brings to us that because he has the victory. Because I don't want you to think of just Jesus as this meek and mild lamb that doesn't do anything. You don't, you don't talk about lambs as being ferocious or mighty. And I don't want you to, to be misled to think that Jesus somehow is less than the warrior that he is. It's part of why God gave to us the titles that he is the warrior God. We have peace because of victory. And so Jesus is the one that fights the battle. And if we go back again to this, as we start in verse 1, it it talks about Gideon and and, uh, the land of Midian. And it talks about having the things broken from war and that it becomes a day where you won't even be thinking of war. And because it's God who is doing the fighting. And remember the story of Gideon at Midian. Remember, and Gideon starts with a great number of mighty warriors. And then God says, that's too many, dwindle it down. And then he gets to another point. He says, dwindle it down some more. He gets to the point where it's by all human standards doesn't make sense. Why would I go into a battle with just a few small number of men? And God says, because I am there with you. It's God's battle, and he is the one who fights. And why does he fight? He fights to liberate us because his people were in oppression. They were overruled by other countries, a lot of times by our own choice. Jesus says it to the disciples. Hey, look at the the people out there. They're harassed and they're helpless, sheep without a shepherd. So pray to the Father to send workers into the, the field, and you are the answer to that prayer. We're the ones to call to go out and to help those who are harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. Because they don't know anybody. Non-Christians don't know any better. All they know is to live for themselves, to protect themselves. We're the ones who have the answer in Christ. And so he calls us to go forth and to be a liberator of those who are oppressed. But we have to recognize that it always comes at a cost. This is the most costly gift that was given to us because God gave his son. Remember, it's very specific that that we looked at the statement that a, a child is born. What's the big deal? But a son is given by the heavenly father. And he's given to us and it's the most costly gift because he will die for us. And so it's with that understanding that I want you to recognize that we are bought with a price and we are not our own. First Peter 1, 18 says this, 
knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You've been ransomed, you've been redeemed by a heavenly king, and not by a cheapness of gold or silver. You haven't been bought with money. You've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so we understand that we have this peace because of Christ's victory and his authority. And so he has the ability to now rule. And his dominion is over all things, but especially those whom he has redeemed. Those that Christ has redeemed, he has the right to rule. So it says of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. And he rules with justice and righteousness. And so as we come to Christmas, I don't want you to just to think of these titles as just Christmas sentimentality. Jesus is so much more. And as we come to this Christmas season, to this Advent season, we should be looking to him to be the ruler of our hearts. We are to submit to his authority, not because we're scared, but because we're in responding in love to what he has done for us. He has given his life as a ransom for us. And what does he bring when he gives us? He brings us shalom. Now, shalom is not just the absence of conflict. It's not just saying that we will no longer have wars. It's not just a psychological term where we say we're going to be at peace. There's very something very specific about shalom. One person defined it this way. The experience of shalom is multidimensional. It's, com- it's a complete well-being, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. And it flows from all of one's relationships being put right, putting being put right with God, within oneself, and with others. That's what it means to have shalom. Now, one Jewish person, I think, probably put it together in a more succinct way. He says, this is what shalom means to him. God wins, you lose. And I want you to think of it that way, that God had to be the victor, not the victim. He's the victor in the midst of the Christ. And so he brings to us peace. And he brings to us a very specific peace. But I also want you to know that peace is something that is meant to be shared. Listen, of all the offerings that we were to bring in the Old Testament, the sin offerings, the wave offering, all these different things that we were supposed to bring into the temple, there is one called the peace offering. And this is the only offering where part of the portion was given back to the person. Why? Because we're supposed to share peace. So you get this offering, this peace that we are supposed to take, that we receive from God, and we're supposed to give it away. Well, we're going to look at how this peace is happening with different relationships. And the first relationship we see is peace with God. And so we know that we have peace with God because there is a victory over sin. See, we have peace, again, in the wake of victory. And Jesus is the lamb, but he's a victorious lamb. He is that perfect sacrifice. And what does Jesus say to those who uh, accuse him and ultimately murdered him? Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they are doing. 
And as we allow Christ's perfect sacrifice of love to overflow to us, to allow us to have that right relationship with Christ and with God, it begins to spill over to others. Because there has to be victory over sin, has to find itself in the midst of healing. Now, what do I mean by that? Listen, it's natural. Um, If you have been hurt, to spread hurt, to spread pain. The thing that was probably the most um, poignant for me was uh, when my parents got divorced. And I started to go through a time of questioning, and it was a bad divorce, and uh, just an overwhelming time for me in high school. And I, I got to the point where I was mentally with this assertion of life's pain. So I don't care who I hurt anymore. It's painful for me. Might as well be painful for you too. See, that's our natural response. So we begin to build our walls. We stop caring because someone's hurt us. We withdraw. We stop loving. We begin to say, well, if this is how I'm going to be treated, well, then I'm just not going to talk to anybody. If this is how so-and-so is, well... I'm just going to care and take care of just mine. Let me give you these words from Reagan to Gorbachev. Tear down that wall. We are called to be peacemakers. Not to build walls between one another. And especially not walls between us and God. We are called to be peace and to spread peace and forgiveness and mercy and grace. Quit trying to protect yourself. The only one that you're hurting is yourself. Allow Christ to forgive you and you forgive others. And as we begin to do that, we we recognize that as we're giving this peace, that we can have peace, first of all, with the world. We know that we can have peace, first of all, with creation. We know this from Romans chapter 8. Looking at verse 16 and following. Verse 19, sorry. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who, are, who will have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for his adoption as sons. So even the earth is crying out to have this peace be known, and it's always seeking to bring peace 
It's begging for peace. And so we see that there's peace in the nature because there is a recreation. We're going to the new heavens and the new earth. And we look forward to that. But there's also uh, peace with mankind. We know that mankind hates God. John 15, 18 tells us very clearly. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It shouldn't surprise us that we're persecuted for our beliefs. But we have the one who is greater than he who is in the world. Listen to what Psalm 2 tells us in regards to how he believes and thinks of the rulers. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? For the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And they do this against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laugh. And the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his fury and his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now though, therefore, O kings, be wise." Be warned, O rulers of the earth. See, it does go back to that one Jewish man's definition. God wins, you lose. Only in Christ do we find the victory. And so we have victory, and then we become the peacemakers. And so we understand that there's, again, peacemakers with God, peacemakers with the world, but we have uh, peacemaking with each other. The first thing he tells us is that we should have peace with our enemies. Luke chapter 6 says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. For the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. For if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners." To get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Peace. And I know it doesn't make sense according to the world's standards. But he says, that's what makes us different. It's easy to live like the world. It's hard to take the truths that we find in Scripture and to apply it. Listen, even as your pastor, I have to hear this preaching to myself. What do I say to my friend when his child's been taken from him at 19 years old? I have to run to the truths of the scripture, to the theology that I know is true. 
Because if I don't, then this world, if this is all there is, it's not worth living for. And so we run with expectation and hope to Christ. And again, as he begins to change us, as it begins to spill over, we're able to love those who are our enemies and to pray for them and to give them without expecting anything back. But only do we love our enemies, we're supposed to have peace with one another. Listen to what Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, this is where it talks about the the six things and the seven abominations. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And listen to the last one. And the one who sows discord among brothers. Breaking peace is one of the things that the Lord hates the most. Because we, of all people, should be about reconciliation. We should be bringing people who are apart together in Christ. And those more than anything within the church. Can it be difficult? Yes. Can it be hard? Yes, but we have been called to forgive and forget. Just as our Savior has done for us. So we need to be peace to one another. But peace never means easy. And maybe one of the places that you are the most um, unrestful is in regards to internal peace. See, there's a lot of unrest in our hearts. And maybe there are some people here even this morning and you are not right with God. Maybe you're here and you're thinking you've done the sin that can't be forgiven. Maybe you're in here and you think that your sin is just too bad and that somehow Christ's blood couldn't repair that. Those are all lies from Satan. Because Christ has given to us the ability to confess our sins before him. To repent, to turn from our ways and turn back to him. Not just being sorry for sin, but to ask in repentance for forgiveness and mercy and grace. And he gives to us freely through his blood. And so our minds can have, our hearts can have peace, peace with God, peace with those that are around us. But we also need peace within our minds because we know that there's inner turmoil that's going on, right? We hear the whispers of Satan. We speak lies to ourselves. We hear condemnation from others. What we need to be is to be still and know God. To listen to a still small voice whisper in your ear. 
You're forgiven. And you're loved. You've always been loved. And always will be loved. And we need that peace within our mind. Listen, even George Carlin, that comedian, said this about what the world has to offer. And this is a man who was not a Christian. He says, we have multiplied our possessions, but we have reduced our values. We talk too much and love too seldom and hate too often. We've learned how to make a living, but not a life. We've added years to life, but not life to years. This man who had no inkling or desire to be a Christian or to know Christ, but he spent time and he thought and he figured out that this world brings pain except for those who know Christ. You are the hope. You are the love. You are the peace this Advent season. Listen to Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And listen. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, he'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One day, because of the baby that was born and the son that was given, listen, war will become an impossibility. An impossibility. Parents, don't you look forward to that day where you don't worry about your children driving on long trips, doing things? Kids, won't you like it when you don't worry about your parents getting old and falling or being alone? Don't you look forward to the day when we don't worry anymore? We begin now because of the one who brings peace. And listen, the mission will succeed because of the one who holds the future. And his name is Jesus Christ. Don't leave this morning without making sure you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Speak to me. Speak to those around you. Find the truth of the Christmas season today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for another Advent season. And Lord, this week we will come to a time where we celebrate your birth and we rip open packages and we'll eat big meals and enjoy and sing. And then it'll be over. But Father, you are from everlasting to everlasting. And so Father, I hope this Advent season, it has become more than just lights and stories, family and friends. 
but this has been a time where we've fallen deeper and deeper in love with our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the wonder, who is the counselor, who is that warrior God, who is the eternal Father, and he is the Prince of Peace. So, Father, change us to look more like him than when we came this morning. For we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen.